there, the saga. Damon. Demon. Damon. Yeah, yeah, demon. Damon. Demon. <laughs> Install Linux Mint. Welcome to Mintcast, the podcast by the Linux Mint community for all users of Linux. This is episode 354.5. Livestream information is at mintcast.org slash livestream. We're in the Mintcast channel in IRC at irc.spotchat.org. If you see something that you'd like to hear about, tell us. Send us email at mintcast at mintcast.org. Join us live on YouTube. Post at the Mintcast subreddit. Chat with us on Telegram, Discord, Facebook, or post directly at mintcast.org. This is Leo, and with me today is Joe. Hello, hello. Moss. I got new teeth. Ooh, and Bo. I still have the same teeth. <laughs> we're, we're recording on Sunday, February 7th, 2021. First up, in our inner section, we discuss Chromium and how to pick a distro. And finally, the feedback and a couple of suggestions. So as I said before, we're all guilty. We all use some Chromium base except for Moss, but I think that might be changing, right? I mean, because you just dabbled a little bit. What did, well, what did you I jump on, Well, I downloaded Vivaldi, but it looked like such a different beast that I couldn't even figure out what I was doing. I started looking at videos on how to use it, and you don't need to do that with Firefox. Yeah, I did the same thing. I've tried Vivaldi, and uh, it just... It's almost like the first time you use Veeam or VI where you're like, I can tell this is a really powerful tool. I don't know how to use it. Yeah, exactly. It's like the Swiss Army knife, but all I use is the corkscrew. Exactly. That's that's pretty much how I handle that, yeah. <laughs> but Vivaldi is really good, though, as far as you know, user-facing features go. I mean, it's got everything that you would want. We, we make fun of Chrome a lot for... You know, they, they want to be a whole new operating system. They, you know, all you got to do is just run Chrome in full screen and you're basically, uh, you know, you have everything that you ever would need. But I think Vivaldi has taken that to a whole nother level, man. I mean, they're, they're like built in. There is notes. There's this bookmark manager thing on the left-hand side. There's, um, you know, speed uh, down at the bottom. It tells you how fast something's downloading, exactly what it's downloading. I mean, it, it is, it, it's a full-fledged, like workspace, you really could full screen that and not have to alt tab out to do much of anything, to be honest. Were you getting that kind of vibe, Moss? I mean, it was, it was just like all I'm, the features. I'm, is too many I'm features? just blown away right now. I've got to do more study before I have any kind of vibe. My, my head starts throbbing and I go <laughs> away, you know? <laughs> uh, yeah, I got you. I got you. So outside of Evaldi, what do you use, Moss? I, I tried Midori back before it switched to Blink. Yeah. Uh, and like, I messed with web, but it's not any good. And we all know that the only other browser out there is Safari, and they have stopped making that for anything except Mac. Yeah, yeah. And yet they still have a respectable, like, 18% of the web, which is pretty good. I mean, I, I guess a, a lot, lot of that's more iPhone. than Firefox. <laughs> yeah, that's true. On mobile, Firefox is effectively zero. So, Joe, what do you, what's, your, what's your daily driver? Chrome. Oh, like actual Chrome? Like actual Chrome. Oh, ugh, gross. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Any, I mean, why, why Chrome? Why not, why not one of the other ones? 
its base features, the ability to, uh, well, one, store all my passwords. And yes, I know I should use a different password manager instead of Chrome, but um, I'm lazy. And um, the ability to sync all of my uh, settings, uh, extensions, and bookmarks, and recent history relatively easily. Um, I know other um, browsers do that now too, but Chrome was one of the first ones to be able to do it and do it reliably and well. And so I've kind of just stuck with it since then. Have I tried out others? Well, yeah, I've tried out some others here and there. I have Firefox uh, installed on all my machines because they come with it. And yes, I do occasionally use Firefox when I don't want to use Chrome for whatever reason. That's true. It's always my backup. Oh, so so Firefox is number two for you, Bo. What do you use? Literally until the last episode, I, I was using Firefox. Firefox was my go-to. And then oh, okay. I had Brave on one computer, and I think it was just because I was like, I wanted to try it out. And then whenever you talked about it last week, I went ahead and installed it on my desktop. And I've, it was an easy migration. I've been using, I've been using Brave since that moment. But, um, but prior to that, I had used Chrome for many years. When I worked at Geek Squad, I was always recommending Chrome. And then at some point, um, you know, I started trying to get less Google-fied and, you know, um, I switched to Firefox and, um, I was planning to eventually replace even Google services, but I never, I never got that far. And so I've been using Firefox for probably more than a few years, but it, it was a Chrome conversion for me from, from Chrome to Firefox and, and now to Brave. So I don't, I, I feel like you steered me in the wrong direction. Maybe I feel like I'm kind of doubting my, my choice last week, Leah. Well, let me let me put this out to you because I mean there will always be bugs and there are bugs in Firefox. So I mean, yeah, like, yeah. like in the, in the security, it's not really a, a a SWAT against Chromium, though you know it's not my favorite engine. But that doesn't really matter. It's it's the it's the monoculture thing that that is really getting everybody. But um, you know, as far as all of the Chromium ones that are out there, yeah, I mean Brave is my choice. Brave is my pick. I don't need fancy features. I don't need notes in a browser. I use VS Code for that, which, I mean, now that I say that out loud, it's kind of, you know, I'm in bed with Microsoft now, too. Uh, but I use Edge as well, like, a, as a backup backup, right? When when Brave doesn't do it or Firefox doesn't do it or I just need a fresh new profile or something like that, uh, Edge is usually what, uh, what I'll do because it's actually kind of good. Um, but Brave, because of all of the cool things that it comes with, you know, another reason why Josh should have been on the show, we were talking about... There was a website, and I forgot what it was now, but it was basically you go with your browser and it will give you a idea using real live actual trackers that exist out on the internet, how secure you are in your tracking sense, right? Like if, can they put a super cookie on your machine? Can they put cookies and track them on your machine? You know, what kind of information does your browser give up about you using the user agent? And the only browser, the only one that actually had uh, you know, checked every single box. It was brave. Mm. So I, I, I have to feel good about that. I have to feel good about the fact that everywhere I go using the brave browser, I'm way more secure than the defaults on Firefox. Now that's not to say Firefox can't do it, but the fact that you have to, you know, click on the hamburger menu, I hate saying that, and then clicking on preferences and then going to the security and then clicking on strict instead of the normal one. That's, that's way too much for most people. So the fact that Brave is just insanely secure out of the box just makes me feel real good about recommending it to people that, you know, even have the slightest inkling of, you know, I don't, I don't want 
you know, Amazon to track me over the next 700 websites that I visit and try to sell me sneakers, you know, like I, I don't want that to happen. So this browser is one that will help you, um, you know, kind of sidestep a lot of that stuff. And like I said, Firefox can do it too, but you know what can't do it? Chrome. Chrome just, we, we ran Chrome through that same exact thing and it checked absolute zero of the boxes. I don't know what I expected. When I put Chrome in there, I was like, well, maybe it'll block some, tra no. It didn't block anything. You expect a Lamborghini to have safety features? <laughs> I mean, it's got an airbag, right? Uh, geez. So, yeah, I mean, Chrome and Brave are on the opposite sides of the spectrum when it comes to Chromium. I mean, Brave actually gives you some semblance of security. Uh, Firefox does too. It, it didn't. It didn't fail any of the tests. But uh, it, you, I think the user agent thing. It was like, yeah, that's definitely Firefox. So, yeah, I mean, Firefox is still my main, my main driver. But anytime I need anything Chromium-based or uh, anything like that, it's, it's absolutely 100% brave. Um, and Edge when I just need a new profile or whatever. But, you know, I would, rather, I would rather Microsoft have my information than Chrome. And that's because Microsoft is not an advertising company. I mean, th for the same reason that I don't, I don't necessarily mind Apple having my information. Just, like, these people do not make their money off of selling you. So I feel better about it. So uh, have y'all wanted to try Edge? Have you wanted to try any of the other Chromium-based browsers? No. <laughs> Moss, yeah, of course. Yeah, you. Bo and Joe? No. <laughs> All right. <laughs> well, actually, yeah, you're using Chrome. You're already in that ecosystem. That makes right. sense. I hate being a purist about anything, but this is as close as I get. <laughs> yeah, definitely. And Bo, you're on, the, you're on the brave train now, huh? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, I'm not opposed to uh, Chrome, Chromium-based browsers. Um, I'm, Edge leaves a weird taste in my mouth. I don't think I could try Edge, but yeah, <laughs> yeah. And I have, you know, tried other browsers in the past for various reasons. Like um, I switched to Opera for a time because um, they were one of the first ones with the uh, built-in VPN feature right out of the box where you didn't have to jump through a whole bunch of hoops. You just had to enter in the information and allow it to work. Oh, oh, Hey, uh, so on that topic, do you know what brave has built in? Built -in yeah, built, VPN. yeah, exactly. Uh -huh. Yeah. <laughs> just, you know, but, just just throwing that um, out there. So does Vivaldi and anymore. I can just toss on the extension for, um, the, the VPN that I use, you know, PIA's extension and enter my information on that and click one button. And I'm using a VPN in Chrome. So I really don't see the point in switching at this point. There have been a couple of times recently where I started testing out Firefox again simply because um, Chrome had was just devouring RAM and just to try it out and see if it worked any better. But I didn't notice any real performance differences. So yeah, I, I stuck with Chrome. I think a lot of folks like to bash Firefox for one reason or another, but um, I mean, it, it seems to me to be just as fast as Chrome ever was. And I mean, the, the fact that if you're going the big boys, if you're going Firefox and Chrome and you're, you're comparing the two, uh, I would imagine you would end up with the same amount of extensions on both, but it would be interesting to see some speed tests between the two, how long it takes to render pages or whatever, uh, in, in between the two of them. So I don't know, maybe we could settle the argument or something. I'm sure that there are some websites out there with that information on it where somebody's gone through a proper testing procedure. Well, I was hearing on a number of sites that Firefox 85 uh, added some features that made it bloody slow. And yes, but Leo um, was mentioning in, in the meeting yesterday 
that Chrome just hasn't added those features yet. You're still not comparing apples to apples. And I think it always goes I think it always goes back and forth. And I think it's a little splitting hairs even whenever the way they, they judge it. So I mean, I don't really know how confident I'd be in seeing any of those results. Yeah, exactly. And I and I think that's why I wanted to do it, you know, have us do it. Um yeah. you know, actually run those kinds of things. And so it would be nice. Uh, it, it certainly would be a, a fun episode to put together. All right. Well, that seems to wrap it up for the whole Chromium talk. So, you know, monoculture bad, something, something, something. Um, so I'm, I want to hand it over to Moss because we kind of talked about choosing a browser in a, in a kind of roundabout way. Uh, Moss, how do you choose a distro and what are you running on now? And, you know, how, how do you do that whole thing? Well, why don't I go with a script I wrote so we can actually follow the thinking <laughs> through. As I was just pressed into service on this topic yesterday, some early bits of this article were borrowed from or inspired by the article, What Does the Penguin Say on LinuxInsider.com? Link in the show notes. So Windows gives you Windows the Windows way. Mac gives you Mac the Mac way. And Linux gives you everything you ever dreamed of or your worst my- nightmares. In a user salad of options, just look at the desktop paradigms. Does the desktop try to capture a traditional or revolutionary desktop interface paradigm? Does it favor sleekness or no frills functionality? Do the developers strive for constant evolution or stability and consistency? Are Windows menus and settings panels minimalist or information dense? Should users accept the UI as it is or make it their own? As founder and co-host of DistroHopper's Digest, these and other issues come to the fore. Which installer does it use, or do they write their own? You got Ubiquity, most Ubuntu's in Mint. You got Calamaris, other Ubuntu, Ubuntu Forks, Gecko Linux, and others. Anaconda, Fedora. You got the Debian installer. You got Yast. Well, on on that on that subject, uh, Ubiquity is coming out pretty soon. Have y'all seen the uh, the the early screenshots of that? Now that Ubuntu is setting off and writing an all-new installer, this issue is even more timely. But do you how think, will, uh, it, how do will you... it be better than Ubiquity? No? Oh, anyone who's, anyone I... who's used Calamaris has a few answers to that one, but can it be better than Calamaris? What about flexibility? Some users of OpenSUSE claim that their installer is better than Calamaris because it has much more and better options, while others like me say those options are not the least bit understood by most users. To that point, uh, in the Yast, in the Yast, Yast, whatever installer, they have an option for you to turn off the uh, Spectre and Meltdown mitigations right out of the box. I thought that was fancy, but I also realized that unless you know what Spectre and Meltdown are, um, that checkbox is going to mean absolutely nothing to you. So. <laughs> but on the on the Subiquity thing, I, I think they're going for a simplification, right? I mean, not that Ubiquity is hard i think you could quite literally just next 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 and get i did a not even know system. they had named it yet uh, okay yeah. all, all they've uh so they've named it subiquity yep a sub subiquity well, I mean, ca- uh, the one thing calamaris does that no other installer does is let you just make one click say replace a partition with this Instead of having to go to, say, something else and then going to another screen to doing it, you can just click it right there on that one screen, and it's easy as pie. Well, I think uh, I think a lot of that affects the folks that are distro hoppers. I mean, obviously, that is you, but, uh, you know, I, I, would, I would like to know, get a general feel for how many people have one Linux on their machine and how many people have more than one, because 
the um, the option you're talking about affects only the people that have more than one. Everybody else, I I think can can get away because I've been getting away with choosing the uh, you know install it on a disc. So I, I choose that option, bring the disc down, double check that the UEFI or the the boot whatever is going to get in the right on the right disc. And then just click next, and I, I never worry about partitioning. I never worry about whether I need to swap this or swap that or anything like that. Um, well, yeah, but all the Windows dual booters also are affected by that. that. True, true, and and yeah, this is why I buy a secondary disc. I just I do not play that game. Mm-hmm. I've I've been burned both directions. Windows has burned me, and Linux has burned me in multiple um, in multiple instances. So I just said, now nah, I'll spend the extra twenty bucks to buy a small disc that I could just run Linux off of completely. Well, we also have some distros coming out now that just provide a pure image file, and you have to install a Grub or another bootloader yourself. And yeah, the whole ISO thing they're saying is old hat and hard out of pass and let's leave it there. And I've been ha- going back and forth with Barry Caller on installing EasyOS by him telling me, well, you just load all your file to your partition and then you just go write Grub. And just go, go right, right grub. grub. <laughs> yeah, really. <laughs> he he has given me complete instructions on what to do and how to do it. But still, that's a whole different attitude to your typical installer in ISO. Well, I think it, it goes into the whole situation of, you know, why even replace Ubiquity? Why did we need Columaris in the first place? Well, because there were things that Ubiquity did not great that Columaris does better. Why even, uh, why does Ubuntu spend all that effort making Subiquity when they already have Ubiquity? Because the whole point of this thing is to make it easy. And when you have the word easy in the name of your OS, it kind of seems weird (laughs) that you don't make it easy to install. When you say, here, install this thing, you just like copy the actual image file onto a partition. You've already lost all the people that might consider that uh, you know, con- consider using your distribution because it says easy. Like, you, yeah, DDing or or but moving you can stuff. also just run it off a stick, and you already have the image file. Just plug the stick in, and it boots. Now that is cool. That is easy. But <laughs> I mean, if you want to actually install it, wow. They're just trying to do the same thing with installation that you're doing on the stick, except you have to still get a bootloader somewhere. Oh, and uh, Londoner said Subiquity is not the installer that's going to be used for the desktop. So, uh, Londoner, when you get a chance, do you know if uh, if it is a if uh, what it's called? Because I thought it was Subiquity, but that makes sense. But there's so much more to choosing a package too. Uh, what package manager do you use, or do they write their own? Uh, everyone's got apt and portage, entropy, urpm, dnf, pacman, pamac, yum, yes, zipper. EO package and all the pup files on puppy and yeah, you know, it's just whole alphabet soup of just packages. And then you start looking at well, what's related to what? What can you share packages with? Like the Debian family, the Ubuntu subfamily, which makes up probably ninety to ninety-five percent of all desktop Linux users. That's Ubuntu, Ubuntu wannabes, mixes and respins, Linux Mint, and indies like Peppermint, Farin OS, and Zorin. Uh, and other independents, uh, the Slackware family, OpenSUSE and its variants are part of Slackware. Red Hat family, which includes Fedora, Scientific, CentOS, Rocky, Clear, and Oracle, and the Mandrake variants, PC, Linux, OS, Magia, OpenMandriva, Rosa. The, then you have the Arch family with things like Endeavor and Majaro. The Gentoo family, Sabayon is now dead, but there is now Mochaccino coming out. Chrome OS, Calculate, Redcore, 
And then you've got just LFS and homebrews like Solus and Clear Linux. So that you got all that to think of in choosing a distro. Then you get around to the desktop environments themselves. And we had a rather extensive show on this topic. How was it? A year and a half ago now? How long ago was that? Yeah. It hasn't been too recent. Yeah, you're asking the wrong guy. Time is time is but a myth to me <laughs> at this point. So you've got no Moritz variants, which includes Cinnamon and Budgie, as well as forks of earlier versions, such as Mate. you got Plasma or forks such as Trinity. You've got Enlightenment or forks such as Moksha. You've got XFCE. Nobody wants to fork that. Uh, LXDE, which has moved into LXQT because the dev did not like uh, GTK3. Uh, and then the independents such as Deepin, Pantheon, and Lumina. So in terms of complete packages of distros, according to statistics seen by Martin Wimpress, mentioned by Martin Wimpress in the past year or so, but not referenced anywhere in public, so you don't know the real numbers, around 85% of all desktop users, Linux desktop users, run Ubuntu with GNOME. Perhaps 5% run Ubuntu Mate, around 4 to 5% run Linux Mint, and that only leaves 5 to 6% for everything else. What are the other everything else's that I would recommend for new users? Everyone has an opinion. I'm running nine different distros across four machines with eight on one machine alone right now. The easiest thing in the world to do is just recommend the main version of Ubuntu or Linux Mint, and you'd be okay doing that. But there are others I'd also recommend based on the machine and the user. Right now, my list would include Ubuntu DDE Remix, Bodhi Linux, PC Linux OS, Open Mandriva, KDE Neon, Zoran OS, Farron OS, and Peppermint OS. The first two are the most unusual and forward-looking. The last three are the easiest to make them look or work the most like Windows 7 or 10, if that's what you're going for. You're, of course, encouraged to try anything official or unofficial Ubuntu, including Linux Mint and Pop OS. On that list, only Open Mandriva and PC Linux OS are not Ubuntu-based. And what is missing from that list includes Fedora or OpenSUSE or Arch-based distros. I don't think you should point a new user at those distros ever. My opinion. And now you all get to tell me how I'm wrong. <laughs> no, no. I agree with you. Anybody else? I mean, just just install Linux Mint. <laughs> yeah, really. What, a... what? It's an option. It's a good option. Yeah. But there are other good options. No, for sure. I mean, you know, not, not it. This show is, I mean, we, we talk about Linux Mint, obviously, but I think this show is way bigger than that. I think we cover a lot of, a lot of different Linux stuff and, you know, we're very welcoming to people that run anything. I don't, it doesn't really matter to me. It's all Linux. It's all the kernel. We're all running the same kernel. So, well, okay, maybe not the same kernel, but we're all running the Linux kernel anyway. Um, so it's just, it's interesting to hear about this kind of stuff, but I don't know. I always find myself coming back to Mint no matter how far I stray. Um, PC Linux OS was a weird one. Uh, I've been, I've been playing with that one here lately and the, the fact that they use apt, but not Debs, they use RPMs instead, uh, just blows uh, my mind. Were, yeah. Like, I don't yeah know. It really is incredible. <laughs> yeah, it, it's strangest thing. They actually modify apt a little bit, but they're using it for RPMs. Yeah. How weird is that? What, what kind of weird thing? Uh, <laughs> I don't even know how to explain it. I don't know why you would do that, but it is. That is what because they do. Because apt is easier to use than RPM. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, is it like like DNF install something and apt install something? It's the same thing. But see, the they started this before removed. DNF was out. DNF is a relatively new thing in the RPM world. Well, same with yum. I mean, you know, before that, yum install right. whatever. It still works the exact same way. As a matter of fact, it's less 
uh, less commands to install updates with yum than it is with app, right? Because it's just yum update well, versus PC app. Linux OS forked off of Mandrake, not Mandriva, Mandrake. Sure. They rebased later on Open Mandriva, but they wrote apt for RPM back then. Yeah. Oh, Scientific is dead, isn't it? I see Scientific in the list. I, I think I didn't it hear is. That, but... um, it got folded back into what CentOS didn't it? Maybe. And then, you know, now CentOS is dead. Yeah. What so. what well, I included both the dead ones and the live ones because people will heard about those. I didn't write down everything. <laughs> now, um, I have a question. Uh, what would your recommendation for users with older hardware that are trying to pump a little bit more life into it? Well, what type of go with a lighter um, distro because those older ones probably don't have a whole lot of RAM. Um, I'd say uh, Ubuntu DDE for me is running about 600 to 670 megs of RAM with nothing loaded. Uh, Bodhi is running about uh, 270 to 340. Um, those are probably my uh, lowest ones. Uh, Lubuntu is really, really good. I probably should have put that on this list. And that's running about uh, 400 to 600. But yeah, you, you uh, get the ones that that run one, one and a half gigs of RAM just loading the distro, and that won't work on an older machine with two gigs of RAM on it. Yeah, Lubuntu is one of my go-tos for like um, mid-range-ish devices, devices that are getting to that point of being old. But if I'm really using an old, like really low hardware device, my usual go-to is going to be MX Linux. I don't like MX. For one thing, I don't like XSCE. Their plasma doesn't really work like plasma. It's ugly and old and missing pixels all over the place. Um, so that's not where I go. Now, maybe if you had a really old machine, but if you had an old machine that didn't have a lot of RAM, why would you use that instead of something beautiful like Ubuntu DDE or Bodhi? Well, do Ubuntu DDE or Bodhi have a 32-bit version? Bodhi has a 32-bit version through version 5.1. Ah, uh, okay. Well, that was the and whole reason why... And they haven't come out past 5.1 yet. 6 is still in work, in the works. That, that was why MX was one of my go-tos for that, is because they have um, a very recently updated 32-bit version, or at least last time I you know, was loading onto a 32-bit machine, they did. Bodhi 5 is still based on Ubuntu 18.04. Okay. Which explains why they have a 32-bit version. Um, have you tried out things like um, really, really like low um, usage, like Puppy? Well, I Anything use like Puppy that? a lot. Puppy is great. It it sort of fits that. Uh, see, you're not talking apples and apples there because Puppy loads the entire OS into RAM, and that means you're using nearly a gig of RAM right there. But right. you're not doing any disk swapping because that's all of the OS. What about DSL? I have not tried DSL, but I would not recommend anything like that to a new user. Ah, okay, okay. Yeah, if you don't have a desktop, you know, if you're using a window manager or uh, you know purely graphical, uh, purely non-graphical interface, that's not going to go for a new user. They're used to seeing the computer that tells them what to do and how they can do it, like Windows. What about your um, heavier weight? operating systems if you've got the memory for it do it but i have not seen any reason to use anything heavier unless like pin guy well i haven't tried pin guy i think i tried to load it and didn't load on my machine yeah 
10 guy is definitely not the easiest thing in the world to run. The smaller the distro, the fewer machines they have to test it on. And so you don't know for sure it's going to run on your machine. So you're definitely safer going with uh, Ubuntu or an Ubuntu spin or remix or Mint. But uh, if you want to try something else, there's a lot of something else's out there that will work and will be gorgeous on your machine. Well, we mentioned KDE Neon very, very briefly here. <laughs> uh, it's about the only, well, Open Mandriva and Neon are the only plasmas that I have on this list. I guess PC Linux OS has a plasma, but I run the Mate version. Um, Neon uses about uh, 500 megabytes of RAM. But there is a lot of swapping because it's a big uh, desktop system. And, you know, the, the fact that it's only loading so much, they're playing tricks to get it to only load so much. If you haven't tried Ubuntu DTE, please try it. It's gorgeous. It works great. It's all Ubuntu utilities just using. Uh, I think Leo showed me today that they're actually still using some of the Deepin uh, apps. But what the devs say is they're using Ubuntu apps. And uh, it really, that you actually have two choices of desktops just with the click of, with one click of the mouse. You either can get the menu-based thing, or you can get the uh, all the icons spread out on the screen. And it, however you use it, it's gorgeous. I was going to use it for the show today, and we found out just before the show that my mic mute was not working. So I, I didn't want to leave my mic open all show, so I switched it switched back to Linux Mint. But I will talk to the dev about that and get that fixed, and maybe next show I'll be on DDE. Yeah, well, even uh, even Cinnamon didn't have the uh, basically the shortcut in the keyboards thing to where you could do the mute mute mic thing. We had to write a script for it. Uh, but now in 20.1, we have that. So you can just assign it a, a keyboard shortcut. But yeah, you know, I'm spoiled because I've been a Mate user all these years. Right. And you've always <laughs> had it. That, that's always been something that's been there. So um, yeah, I'm, I'm glad Cinnamon caught up on that one. It, it does make my life a whole lot easier because when I'm on my laptop, there's a physical hardware button for that. But anywhere else, there's not. So I either have to um, you know play with the sound applet or yeah, this this keyboard binding now, which is way simpler to deal with. Yeah. Now, I know you didn't want to specifically talk about Fedora, so <laughs> I'm going to mention it just a little bit. I don't think Fedora is bad for new users. I think it's actually relatively easy to use if you're starting out. The only problems that you get, well, this is my opinion on Fedora specifically. Um, and I think the only time you come to a real problem is when it comes time to update with Fedora. Um, I'm not sure that they have a really good update path for most of their um, new releases. It's basically a nuke and pay. The problem with Fedora for a new user is the installer. You cannot understand those words unless you're, you've been in Linux for so long and you've been a coder for so long and you have these things. Those words do not make half the sense that what is in Ubiquity or Calamaris, and Calamaris is easier yeah. than Ubiquity. You might be right. I've just been doing this for a long time now. Well, I've been so doing it for a long I time, and it was just like it. And, until I got that uh, Dell Inspiron from Josh. I had never successfully installed uh, Fedora. I tried a number of times, but I get to a certain point in the installer and what? And I just go do something else. So I don't mind. If I actually tried using Fedora on that system and something I didn't like about it. And I uh, 
nuked and paved. And I went back to it later to say, well, maybe I didn't give it a good chance and it still didn't work right for me. So I, Fedora is not my idea of a, of a new user distro. It's definitely not. I mean, especially if, uh, if what you're looking for is easy, because the moment you bust out Firefox and you're like, ah, you know what, while I'm doing all this, I'm going to watch some Netflix. <laughs> no, you have to go install RPM Fusion and then FFmpeg libs, and then that'll pull in all the things that you need for that. And you got to restart Firefox and you can turn it back on and then you can do Netflix and well, yeah, I mean, it's on purpose. So it's That's like how they, they do that on purpose. Netflix on, so it's like trying to watch Netflix on Linux 10 years ago. Basically, yeah, they, they, they've chosen to put themselves in that position. So, I mean, yeah, just out of the box, it's not the most user-friendly yeah. thing in the world. We want the new users to come across Netflix the way it is on Windows because that's what they're yeah. used to. Well, I mean, if, if they're coming so from Windows, Chrome. yeah, I was going to say, if they're coming from Windows, they're likely just going to go straight to Chrome anyway. So it would work in that case. But yeah, if you want to use Firefox, no, you got to do some work. Well, I'm sure I have a lot more opinions I could throw at you, but that about covers it on this topic. All right. Let's go vibrate. Cool. So uh, feedback time, feedback time. So we had a couple emails. Uh, the first one is from Eric Leet. Y'all want to take that? Sure. Um Hi, guys. I am way behind on my podcast, but I finally listened to episode 352.5, and I am very intrigued with Brad Alexander's reply to my remote backup encryption issue. Can you forward me his email? I was going to tackle this project over the weekend, so this is timely. The assistance from Brad is a perfect example of how great the Linux community is. Thanks and keep up the good work. I don't mind the length of the podcast. Keep up the great content. Eric. See, because they have then, they have a thing called a pause button, right, Eric? <laughs> you just yeah. pause it and well, listen to us more later. I, I know, um, Leo, you forwarded the email, right? Yes, sir. He does have it. Okay. So that's handled. And then the next one is from Henrik Hemron by email. Hi, I've started to use Joplin for notes. I use it on Linux Mint, Mac OS, and iOS. And I use Nextcloud to sync between devices with E2E and stored encrypted on Nextcloud. For Linux installation, there is an app manager to download, but they recommend to instead install with a script. On Linux, the recommended way is to use the following installation script as it will handle the desktop icon too. And then it's a wget uh, for a .sh. Can you explain the difference, what happens differently on my machine and why they recommend the script? See the start page for the installation. And that's joplinapp.org. Uh, so it looks like the the difference is that uh, the app image is kind of like how you install software on Windows back in the day uh, where, you know, you installed it. And then if you ever needed to update, you had to go download the new one and install it. That is what you're doing with the app image. I don't know that there is an auto updater inside of the app image. There isn't. You have to get a new app image. Um, but uh, the thing with app image is it's very much containerization. So um, it will work on any machine, but it'll never get updates. Right. So you'll get it, and it'll work. It'll have all the libraries that it's supposed to have. It'll have all the versions it's supposed to have. You, you make it so it's executable. You double-click it, and it's going to work on your system because it's an app image. Um, the script that you have there, I'm, now I'm making assumptions on the script, and it should auto-update. Wait, hold, hold, hold on, hold on. I know what you're about to assume, and it's not right. Um, 
the script. It just goes and downloads the latest version of the app image and replaces the old app image and makes the new app image executable and then links really? it to the icon. Yeah. So it, this is actually really? an interesting script. That's all it does. It 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 adds the auto update feature to the app image itself itself, but it stays app image the whole time. There's no repo or any any crazy anything like that added. It seems like. So, so- yeah, because I was assuming that if they gave you uh, an SH script, that it was going to do a pull right. and then do a compile and then run everything for you and get everything all yeah, set nope. up, which then should do updates. But if you want to update again later, you have to run this script again? Uh, it's, I, this is something I don't know. I haven't do- dove that far into the script, but I found where the meat is, and it's the downloading and installing of Joplin. And what, what it does is it makes a temporary directory, downloads Joplin into that directory, then it will it will say installing Joplin, which all it does there is it deletes the current app image and then replaces that app image with the new app image. And let me see. So yeah, yeah, and then and then you would have to rerun this. Yeah, and then adds adds the executable bit. So I, I would assume so, that you would have to run it, but it may add a little service or something. I haven't looked through uh, the whole thing, but you know, even if not, just run that script or you know put it in uh, in cron. To run this for script, once yeah, month. once once a day, once a week, once a however often you want it to happen, and and that would be that would be it. There's also, uh, you know, what you could do. You know, actually, this is the best way to do it. If you use Linux Mint, there is a startup applications. Just link this shell script into that startup applications, and every time you reboot your computer, it'll get a, get the newest version of this Joplin. So, Henrik, the answer is for this particular one, there is no difference. Yeah, except. The, the script just kind of automates some of the, the stuff icon. for you. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah, it does do the icon for you, so that, that is true. So it's interesting. That's really cool. I, I, this is the first time I've encountered this, where, where yeah, it's not a repo or anything that they're having you do. It, it, it just really has you download the new app image, and then it just kind of handles it from there. That's pretty cool. That's really cool, actually. Uh, I, I had made a post, uh, or I had, I had uh, tweeted out this thing where I just took a screenshot of, and, and y'all tell me what y'all think about this, um, where I took a screenshot of the Mac installation thing. If y'all ever installed software on a Mac, you download a DMG, you double click it, it basically mounts this image and it says, hey, to install this, drag this icon into this folder. And that's it. Like, that's the whole installation process. There's none of this Windows next, next, next business, none of that. Right. There's just drag, drop. Now, Mac does have that type of installer, but it's not as common as the little drag drop application thing. And that's what app image is. App image is quite literally just all the junk put into a container. You put it in a place and you run it. And that's what DMG files are in Mac. So there are things that exist that will help you and make it more like that. But do y'all think it would be advantageous for like all of the distributions to adopt a this is how we handle app image, and it's basically that, where like you double-click the app image, it's like, hey, you want to install it? We'll drag and drop it into here, and then you're done. I'm and then for it's in it. your menu. Yes. I, I think app image would, would just skyrocket in, in usage if it were that easy. And that feature has been written. You just have to get the distros to adopt it. Right, and that's that's the hardest part, right? Like there's app image D, and then there's app image manager or something like that, but neither of them are included in distros. And if they were, we would be so much closer to this app image, like, takes care of itself. It behaves like Mac. And for however much everybody hates Apple and Mac and whatever, they hit this right. It is the easiest way to install software I've ever seen outside of portable apps and Windows. And that's a whole nother, that's a whole nother story. But it just, I, I don't know why we can't embrace app image like that. And for, 
uh, that there are enough proponents of AppImage that I bet we could make enough noise to make that happen. Anyway, that was fun. I haven't looked into a script in a while. That was uh, thanks. Thanks for that, Henrik. I appreciate that. Well, it's time for John, the John. Wallace. There, the saga. All right. So uh, he writes in, thank you for your helpful feedback on 353.5. Much appreciated. I would appreciate your advice, please, regarding the following services that Linus has marked unsafe. All right. Well, the first one on the list, postfix.service. Yep, disable it. You don't need it. You're not running an email server. Yeah. I would imagine it's not running by default. And if it is, what did you install to make postfix run on default? I don't even have the service installed on my machine. So uh, I don't know how you got it. If it's actually there, it may just be a, you know, check on this kind of thing. But um, yeah, so Postfix, it's an email server. It's quite literally what it does. It listens for email connections, things like that. Uh, If you're not running an email server or listening for uh, messages directly, like as in you're not using Gmail, you have your own like email listener, um, then yeah, don't turn it off. But I mean, in 99.99999% of the other uh, issues, yeah, just just turn Postfix off. That one is perfectly safe to just kill. Oh, tax action in YouTube says Kubuntu includes the app image automatically. So okay, so while I go over the rest of this email tax, um, really, like like you can double click it and it's just super easy, and then it's just like all over the entire distribution at that point, or all over the the desktop environment at that point. You can just go like search it up after double clicking it once. It it just works at that point. What what distro was that? Uh, Kubuntu seems like, but I'll, I'll give him a minute because there's there's a lag on the uh, uh, you know what we say and then when it gets to YouTube. So I'll give him a minute to to answer back on that. So I'll run down through these services. Uh, RC.local. This is a service that if you have older uh, runtime scripts like the old sysv init scripts that you used to run back in the day, if though if you have those running and you need them to be um, running in your new shiny system D situation. That service is helpful in uh, in that case, but I've never heard of RC Local being that service being used any other time. So I'm pretty sure that one's safe to disable as well, unless you have. There old are scripts. some instances where um, cron won't work well with kicking off something at boot for whatever yeah. reason, and then RC.local is good as a workaround for that. Oh, okay. So it could be it, something using it that he doesn't realize. Got it. So, okay. So then I will, I'm 90% sure you can probably just turn that off, but hearing this. I don't, I don't think it would be like detrimental to a system either way. Anything important is going to be loaded by system D, but there yeah. may be something. Yeah. Exactly. I, I, I like that. That's, that's funny. System D has to load up the, the, the service that helps system D load up the service. <laughs> For yeah. the old stuff anyway, it's funny. Yeah. But I, I've used rc.local or rctaclocal.sir. I, RC local, I've used quite a bit on like a Raspberry Pi to get things to kick right. off properly at startup. Right. So um, rescue.service, I'm actually not familiar with this one, but there's a couple of them. There's rescue.service and emergency.service. Uh, and, and this is a way that you can, when you're logging into a, like an unstable system, it can help you drop down to a root only kind of context. So kind of like single user mode when you're running in emergency mode or whatever. Um, so I mean, I don't think I would disable this one just in case you need that fail safe. But I mean, you can certainly see why that would not be a good thing, right? I mean, if you can issue the rescue service or if you can start the rescue service, then um, it's there's a potential for anybody to start the rescue service. So that might be uh, something that you want to consider yourself. Um, 
uh, you know, honestly, you can run a, you know what? It, it might not be that big of a deal to, to disable that because if you have a, like a live version of Linux Mint or something like that floating around, then it doesn't matter what the service is set to. You're still going to be able to get to a, a pseudo single user mode uh, that you can make changes on the system. So, you know, if you turn this off, I, I don't think it's, it, it would be detrimental to your boot either. Um, this might be one of those where you just test it and find out. Um, but you, yeah, I don't know anything about that. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's, I've, I've never come across a service. I've never enabled it myself. So I, I can't say I've, uh, I've messed with it. So interesting though. Um, but yeah, this might be a touch and go turn it off or disable it on start and just see, you know, if it, if it messes with your boot and if it does, uh, then just re-enable it and leave it alone. <laughs> I don't think it would mess with his boot, but yeah. Um, I, I want to, I could, I could be wrong. I could be misremembering this, but I want to say I've used this before whenever, um, system D didn't load correctly. Like my system right. hung because of system D. And so it's not something you need every boot. So I don't think it would affect him by turning it off, but should the time arise that he does need it, he may not have it. Exactly. Exactly. And so what I'm, what I'm kind of getting at with that though, is that you know, if, if you're afraid that someone's going to run off with your laptop for a few minutes or a few hours or something like that, or, you know, just, it's just in a position to be stolen, then, you know, if, if they can get it to start booting, they might be able to, uh, to use this rescue.service. But I mean, you know, this is not necessarily a bug or anything like that. It's just, it's designed to be this way. It's designed to fail down like that so that you can fix whatever you broke during the last reboot or something like that. So you've, you've got to be, uh, I guess you need to be careful with that. I would leave it alone. But, you know, if you're worried, uh, because you're running Linus, you're, you're obviously thinking about the security implications of all of this. That might be it. Uh, this is a fun one. I did not know that R-Sync had its own right. daemon. Like, what? Okay, so daemon? so I had to, yeah, yeah, dre, demon, demon, that's the one. Daemon. <laughs> so <laughs> it turns out you can run uh, man space rsyncd.conf. And it gives you the, uh, it explains pretty much how you put the configuration file together to run rsync as a daemon, as in always listening for new connections and things like that. Um, so let's say that, um, you know what, long story short. Why would you need to run rsync as a, as a service? It, honestly, uh, yeah, I don't know, because uh, rsync seems to me to, you know what, it's it's when you're doing those machine to machine style things. This is so that our sync is up and listening all the time. So, okay. um, you know, it just, I don't know why it never occurred to me that, that of course is a service for this, that of course is a demon for this in the background or whatever, but um, yeah. I mean, demon? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> demon. So uh, our sync runs on uh, port 873. So here's the deal. If you do remote our sync, then leave it on. If you do not do remote our sync, that, you know, I, I keep saying remote rsync, but R in rsync stands for remote. But anyway, <laughs> um, non-local. Right. There you go. If you do non-local rsyncing from one machine to another or something like that, then leave it on. Otherwise, leave it off. So that one's a cut and dry one, but it just, I, I don't know. I don't know why that never occurred to me. Just, it didn't. Um, and then the last one on the list is uh, rsyslog.service, which is syslog. So yeah, syslog. If um, this is remote syslog as well. So if you want to remotely be able to access your logs from uh, from another machine or something like that, you'll leave the service running. So, uh, you know, for the same reason that you want to leave rsync running or turn off rsync, you want to leave rsyslog running or not. Uh, so if you never plan on looking at your logs remotely, then yeah, just turn the service off. It'll be fine. Yeah, it's used. We, uh, places I've worked in the past have used this. Um, actually, it's 
in, in most corporate environments, this is replaced by other services these days, but you can say that you want your syslogs to go to a specific uh, URL. And then on that URL, you make sure that it's looking to receive it. And it can be used for like, if you've got like a hundred machines and you all want the logs to go to one place so that they're easy to, to manage. That's sort of what yep. it's for. Exactly. Or you can dump it all into something like, um, oh, what is the name of that thing? Now people just use Splunk. That's the one, Splunk. Yep, absolutely. Yeah, I've Splunk. got a bunch of Splunk stickers like right next to me. I don't know how I forgot the name. Well, oh, Splunk's the new hotness, man. I actually yep, like it. it you is. know, a lot of times these things come out and it's just kind of buzzwords around corporate offices, but Splunk's pretty cool. Um, yeah. But like uh, you can actually use the Splunk forwarder instead of our syslog. You, you have the choice either either way you wanted to go. Yeah, they have an agent. Yeah. Anyway, so he finishes off the email. Uh, additionally, I would appreciate your guidance regarding the following advisory message from Linus. And it says, disable kernel support of some file systems. Uh, discover kernel modules. CramFS, FreeVXFS, HFS, HFS Plus, JFFS2, UDF. So um, UDF is CDs. How funny. Um, so, yeah, you've got to be careful with this. You have, you have to quadruple check that you never use any of these file systems. And CramFS and UDF are the only two that I know are actually in use. Like, they, they will get used by some random things in Linux. UDF, of course, being CDs and stuff. Uh, CramFS. I, I don't know if CramFS is used in AppImage, but I know that they, they tend to use them in, uh, in, like, image files and things like that. So... Uh, so you've got to be careful with this one. But what I would say is, um, if I'm not mistaken, I mean, it's, it's referring to these as kernel modules. So what you'll do is add a couple of things into the Etsy ModProbeD blacklist file. If you, um, you, all you really have to do is like, if you want to block HFS from loading as a kernel module, then you'll go into that file. So it's in Etsy, in ModProbe.D, and a file named blacklist. Go in there and then just on a new line, type in HFS and then save it. And then uh, as the kernel starts loading up modules, it checks the blacklist, sees HFS on it, and we'll say, okay, no, I, won't, I just won't uh, load that one at all. So, yeah, for the other ones, uh, if, you're, if you're keen on disabling them, that's uh, system control, system CTL, space, disable, space, and then, you know, if you want to disable postfix, then postfix.service. Uh, if you want to prevent them from ever turning on, you want to mask. So system, system control, mask, and then that... Um, that service, whatever that is. And so even if you try to like re-enable it or something like that, the mask will still can uh, still force it off. Uh, that way you can feel better about your disabling. Anyway, I mean, yeah, a lot of these, uh, you know, the, the answers to these questions are always, it depends. <laughs> I love that. I absolutely love that about security in general. Well, it depends on, are you doing this? Are you doing this? How are you doing this? Yeah, definitely. So to close the loop on uh, tax action stuff, he says... You still have to execute the file, but once you double-click, the launcher has been included and the options come up to run once or add to menu. Works fine. So I've seen that uh, come up before, and I don't know if it was with Kubuntu or not. So I think it is more widespread, but yeah, cool. So double-click the app image, and it installs to your menu. That's fantastic. That seems pretty some nice. People, some people are doing it. That's cool. All right. Well, that'll do it for our feedback. So let's head down to check this out. Uh, Hoozy in Telegram had mentioned, uh, so we had this conversation a long time ago. We were talking about when Flash goes away, what's going to happen? And I had said, well, there's probably going to be like some kind of DOS box, something or another that will allow you to do this. And yeah, so there's this thing called Ruffle. 
Uh, thank you, Hoozy, for this. It's a Flash Player emulator built in the Rust programming language. So if you have all this old Flash file, you got these Swift files or whatever that you've just, oh, no, I can't do this anymore, whatever. Um, yeah, so you can run Flash on the web through Ruffle. And the cool thing about this is that it uses modern browser sandbox technology so that, yeah, it doesn't go steal all your passwords and stuff when you find, um, you know, really not good uh, Flash stuff. But uh, it seems like it works iOS and Android, too. So just it's fantastic. Man, Hoosie, I wish you hadn't told us about this because now I'm going to have to pretend <laughs> like I don't know about it. Whenever people at work ask me about running Flash, I'm going to have to lie yep. to them when I say that there's no way to do it. Yep, and you're going to have to have that on your conscience now and forever. <laughs> Flash is dead. Long live Flash. All right, Moss, what do you got? Well, I found that a Raspberry Pi respin of MX Linux is now in beta. You need to grab a copy of their app called Imager to install it. That sounds pretty cool, though. And there is a good article at itsfoss.com, the most anticipated distros of 2021. I would add two to their list. I'm still waiting for Bodhi 6 to come out and Slackware 15. But that's all I got. And uh, I, was, I was trying to catch up with the YouTube chat, and I totally forgot. Um, Nitrix, that, it's, it's just a full-on app image like distribution. They're just based off app, app yep, image. You don't install anything. That, uh, you just put in the app image. Yeah, but the whole thing so, about sure it is so have... hard for me to wrap my head around. I, it's so simple that I can't figure it out. Yeah, yeah, you, you've got, um, you know, like repository fatigue. You just can't get rid of it. Anyway, well, that'll do it for the show. Our next show will be at 2 p.m. Central U.S. time on February 21st, 2021. And we'll have a link in the show notes as well as on the website uh, for a way to convert to your own time zone. That way you don't have to do any of that horrible, horrible math. I know I would get it wrong every single time. So check out the show notes or the website for that link. So, Joe, outside of the show, where can we get more of you? You can catch me on a couple other shows. Um, the Linux Link Tech Show, which is www.tllts.org. You can catch me on Linux Lugcast. We just recorded this last Friday www.linuxlugcast.com. You can find me on MeWe, or you can send me an email, jb at mincast.org. Nice. And Bo, what about you? I have a YouTube channel called Undercast Collective. Um, myself and other podcast friends of mine post videos there of either podcasts or uh, card games or tabletop RPGs, just kind of nerdy things we're into. And, uh, and what was that other thing? There was another one coming up? Oh, and during the show, I made uh, Probar Colonel Panic on YouTube. Potentially, we may we may be using that. I don't I don't know. I got to talk to Josh about it. But I went ahead and got it because you pointed out that someone could steal it out from under me. <laughs> yeah, exactly right. It, 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 probably not. But uh, yeah, once the show's out there, man, <laughs> you just never know. Hey, go what ahead and subscribe. You? Maybe it'll have stuff on it. <laughs> there you go. I'll do it here in a sec. Moss, what about you? Well, of course, I've got It's Moss, me and Dylan. Um I'm on MeWe. I have other blogs, but they don't really count for much. Uh, music on Bandcamp and on various YouTube channels, all of which are linked in the show notes. Moss at Mintcast.org. Uh, I'm on Mastodon as at Zyvala at Host Tux Social. 
You can reach me very quickly by email at zyvalananda at protonmail.ch. And don't forget, I have a sponsor. Nice. And uh, Tony Hughes is not here this time, but you can find him on HPR, uh, host ID 338. He's got his blog at tony-hughes.blogspot.com. Find him on Twitter at TonyH1212. Email him at th at mincast.org or distrohoppersdigest at gmail.com. Tony Watts also not here, tw at mincast.org, or just search him up, Echoes of Savages. And Josh isn't here either, but Josh on tech at mincast.org. Hey, it's live. Is that real? I didn't do it. Thank you to whoever did. <laughs> I actually at, I actually didn't do it. I don't think it's real. Well, Josh told me it's <laughs> oh, real, so you know someone what? must Send have email done it. anyway, and then that might make us actually do it. <laughs> oh, oh, cool. All right. Joe, maybe? Joe, did you do this? Nope. Oh, my God. I don't think it's real. I don't think it. it's real. Oh, no. You know what? I'm just going to email it and see what happens. Uh, yeah. Tony has the actual. Oh, maybe. maybe. Oh, yeah. At, uh, you can find him at Josh on Tech on Twitter and pretty much everywhere else. You can find him at Josh on Tech. Uh, and then for me, leotravis.org and at leotravis on Twitter, leo at mincast.org. If you need to email me, linuxuserspace.show is the other show that I'm on. And uh, you can get your five-minute news digest at Full Circle Weekly News. But before we leave, we want to make sure to acknowledge some of the people who make Mintcast possible. Owen Peary for our audio editing. Josh Lowe for all his work on the website. Hobstar for our logo. And Londoner for our time sync. Bytemark Hosting for hosting Mintcast.org and our Mumble server. Archive.org for hosting our audio files. HPR for the backup Mumble room. And of course, the Linux Mint development team for the fine distro we love to talk about every single fortnight. Thanks, Thanks Clem. Clem. Thanks, Clem. And This has been another episode of the Mintcast podcast. The show notes for this episode are at mintcast.org. You can send us email at mintcast at mintcast.org. You can find more information about Linux Mint at www.linuxmint.com. You can follow both Mintcast and Linux Mint on Twitter, at Mintcast and at Linux underscore Mint. Thanks to Mark Blasco at podcastthemes.com for our theme music. And thanks for listening to this episode of the